Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I am your host, Zach Bitter, and today I have an interview episode for you. Today's guest is Dr. Ethan Weiss. Dr. Weiss is a cardiologist who also takes on a low carbohydrate approach to his nutrition. His is a little unique. He follows what I would call a Mediterranean style or version of a low carbohydrate diet. And I wanted to talk to him a bit about how he arrived at that as the way to structure his low carb approach, as well as what he sees as a cardiologist with some of his patients who are on a low carbohydrate ketogenic diet. If there's variances in how that structure and how that impacts different health markers and things like that. So I was excited to get his perspective and perhaps open up or broaden the uh, view of what can be included with low carbohydrate ketogenic nutrition with his approach to it. Also, if you are interested, I have a few episodes up on the show Patreon page right now that offers ad-free early release options for subscribers. On that list right now is my friend and fellow ultra marathon runner, Nick Curry. Nick had an explosive year last year in 2021. He was ranked the number two ultra marathon runner in North America by ultra runner magazine. And with that came quite a diverse set of races, which included the end of his year culminating in an American record at the 24 hour distance where he covered an astounding 173 miles in a 24 hour period, all on a 400 meter track. Another reason I really wanted to talk to Nick outside of his success last year is he's got a couple unique things about him. One is his pacing strategy. A lot of times in ultra marathon, there is this expectation that things are going to get tough at the end and therefore you will be running slower at the end. Nick has flipped this on his head. He focuses specifically on not just even splitting his races, but negative splitting them. And sometimes by a fairly large margin. So I wanted to see how he arrived at that, what that entails. Should the rest of us ultra marathon folks be also targeting that sort of approach and how that all plays out in his strategy between training, recovery, racing, et cetera. Nick has also tried a lot of different nutritional approaches for running these races, including low carbohydrate. So I wanted to check in with him and see how he structures his approach currently, as well as other options that he's done in the past and how he kind of compares them strengths, weaknesses, et cetera, with that. So if you want to get your hands on that one early, you can head over to the show Patreon page links to that can be found on the show landing page, which is at zachbetter.com forward slash HPO. Also in the hopper over there on the Patreon page is an interview I did with Graham Tuttle. Graham is known as the barefoot sprinter on social media channels. And he has gotten quite the following for some of his practices that he has done in terms of strengthening the body and better preparing for it. His big thing is running should not feel hard or painful. It should feel easy sort of. (laughs) So I wanted to hear what Graham had to say, what stuff he does from a strength and conditioning standpoint to prepare his body for running, what he's done with other clients to help them get healthy and be strong and resilient. It was pretty cool because Graham was in town here in Austin and he came over to my house and we went through a whole battery of different workouts and things. And he showed me some really cool moves, a lot focusing on ankle and hip and kind of highlighted for me that a lot of times runners maybe deal with knee issues and more often than not, that's not something where the knee is a problem. It's weak ankles, weak hips, causing impact forces to end up in the knee where we don't want them. When we get our ankles and our hips strong, the knee becomes passive and takes on less of that load on impact from running. So he shares some gems as to like, what are some moves that you can maybe incorporate in your strength and conditioning programming, regardless of whether you're a distance runner, a sprinter, just a fitness enthusiast, whatever you're doing, there's some actionable items in there. I had a great time sitting down. It was an in-person interview. I love those ones when I can get people in town here in Austin to come and do the recording. So that one's up on the show Patreon page as well and will be released down the road to all podcast platforms. Also, if you want to support the show uh, monetarily, but not through Patreon, there is a one-time donation link that you can find on my website at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO if you'd like to support the show that way. If not, but you'd like to support the show non-monetarily, 
one way that goes a very long ways is writing us a review on whatever podcast platform you listen, or you can like subscribe to the episodes you like and the podcast on that platform you use. You can share it with your friends and family members. If you find an episode you like, all that goes a long ways in helping me grow the show and keep the wheels moving in the right direction. Also, if you notice one of the show sponsors has an option or a product that you'd like to check out, that is a great way to help support the show by letting them know you came through here. All the show sponsors, links, discounts, and information can be found on the sponsor landing page, which is zachbetter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. The sponsors links for specific episodes are also found in the show notes, as well as all the links I've mentioned so far. For this particular episode, my friends from Athletic Greens are sponsoring it. Athletic Greens flagship product, AG1, is a supplement that contains 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens that will help start your day right. I take one scoop of AG1 and two drops of their vitamin D in eight ounces of cold water first thing in the morning. If you're looking to add a multivitamin to your regimen, AG1 is a lifestyle-friendly fits into a keto, paleo, low-carb, dairy-free, gluten-free, and even vegan diet. It has only one gram of sugar, no GMOs, and is free of artificial ingredients. AG1 continually updates their product based on the latest science and third-party testing. On top of all that, they donated over 1.2 million meals to kids in 2020. To make it easy, Athletics Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash HPO. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash HPO to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. You can find links to that in the show notes, as well as at zachbetter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Also sponsoring this episode is Gooder. Gooder makes $25 active sunglasses for anyone. Gooder sunglasses are lightweight, comfortable, don't move when you move, all for only $25. No slip, no bounce, all polarized and all fun. All Gooders are 100% UV protective and 100% polarized, whether you're running, cycling, hiking, or simply spending some time in the sun. Gooder will stay snug and comfy. Gooder is running free U.S. shipping on all orders over $50, 30-day free returns, a one-year warranty, and 100% carbon neutral and 1% for the planet. If you go to gooder.com, that's G-O-O-D-R.com forward slash HPO, you will get 15% off your entire order when you use the code HPO at checkout. That's gooder.com forward slash HPO and use the promo code HPO at the checkout. Again, all those links are in the show notes or at zachbetter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Dr. Weiss, thank you for taking some time out of your day to chat with me. Thanks, Zach. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it's uh, been a, you've been a guest I've been trying or not trying, I guess, but uh, like wanting to kind of reach out and get on the podcast at some point, because I think you have a very like interesting story and uh, as someone who follows a low carbohydrate diet, I'm always interested in just like the different iterations of it. Because when I started, it was, I guess, probably not early by any stretch of the imagination in terms of like the actual history of like low carbohydrate eating, but certainly kind of earlier on, and maybe the most recent kind of uptick in popularity with it. So like, as these things tend to happen, there's like one way to do it at first. And then all of a sudden you realize like with any diet, whether it's low carb, keto, vegan, whatever, there seems to be lots of different ways to kind of program it. So then there's this little bit of a, uh, a a space of trying to figure out, well, which one is going to both work best for me as well as when, which one is kind of like the best way to possibly program it at a population level when you don't know anything specific about the individual. Uh, so for, for yourself, how has that kind of been for you kind of exploring, exploring this kind of this, uh, this world of nutrition when it comes to low carbohydrate stuff? Yeah. I mean, I, I came at it very much with the sort of bias of, uh, probably how we all approach nutrition, 
you know, you're younger than I am, but you know, I grew up in the 1970s and 80s, and at a time when fat was a was a you know enemy, and we were instructed to eat as little fat as possible. So you know, foods were sort of uh, prominently advertised as being low fat or non-fat. And of course, we all know what that means, right? Because nutrition is a zero sum, so it meant that there was more of another macronutrient, most likely carbohydrates. And so I grew up very much programmed to think the carbohydrates were healthy and the that that was not. And, and again, the mistake, I think we can talk in detail about sort of what happened in the seventies with the guidelines, but I think the mistake that I made at that time was lumping in all fats together in the same bucket, you know, meaning, you know, unsaturated fats and saturated fats. And, uh, and so I, I remember actually having a conversation with an endocrinologist friend of mine, we were working in a lab together in the early two thousands and talking about the sort of at that point, the Atkins diet sort of early, low carb diet and thinking, God, it's kind of crazy. It's lunacy, right? Like you, why would you do that? It's going to be really bad for your heart and stayed away from it for a long time and really didn't come back to it again until somewhere around 10 years ago and started to kind of dig in on the data and the data looked really interesting. And, uh, you know, again, we can talk about all of it, but from my perspective, I, I've always approached this from the standpoint of what's going to be healthy for me individually, but also at a population level, uh, and sort of how do we balance the potential impact of these diets on things that we know are, are causative for coronary artery disease, which is the disease that I sort of am most interested in. So that was sort of how I came to it. I agree with you. There was a perception at the time that there was only one way to do it, and, and that's clearly not the case. So that's sort of how, I, how I came to it. Mm -hmm. So when you first got interested in implementing, and I, I believe you're kind of, would you classify yourself as kind of low carb versus keto? Well, it's kind of embarrassing to say I haven't checked my ketones in probably a couple of years. Uh, I used to check them a lot. You know, I, uh, I think checking ketones is interesting. It's probably a really useful behavioral tool. I'm not sure exactly it matters that much, whether you're in ketosis, I know that's probably heresy, but, uh, so I don't know, but I think I eat roughly the same. I'm maybe a little bit more permissive with my carbohydrate intake than I was when I was checking ketones regularly. And when I was checking them, I was definitely in ketosis, but I'm also exercising a lot more now than I was then. So I actually meant to check recently. I was kind of just like curious. It's been such a long time and I just never got around to it, but I guess I'm sort of on the borderline low level of nutritional ketosis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, the ketone side of things has always been kind of interesting to me because I think when I first got in, I maybe naively just assumed like, oh yeah, if you, you want to jack them up as high as you can get them, and that would indicate something, but I, I think the further we get along the line of studying that sort of thing, we don't necessarily know like what kind of implications. I think there's maybe some application with like people with who have seizures and things like that, where they maybe want to keep them relatively high elevated. But for someone like myself, who's focusing on performance more than anything, for the most part, I haven't seen any reason to believe that a blood ketone marker is going to necessarily indicate even how, I mean, to a degree, I think it can indicate like your fat oxidation rates, but I've had some pretty relatively low level ketogenic blood marker readings with very high fat oxidation rates. And then I've also had relatively high blood ketone levels in the presence of some of my higher, I say this relatively because like my carbohydrates are all relatively low compared to, compared to most endurance right. runners, but relatively high to what I would normally average. I've still produced some pretty high blood ketone levels in those scenarios. A lot of times I think that lifestyle component plays a big role. I mean, I'm also maybe training two, three hours that day. So it has yeah. an interesting variable to kind of throw into the mix of it with all of that. But, um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting as a, as a marker. And I think you, you hit on something that is interesting. I do think a lot of people who are checking those, it keeps them on track to a degree. It's like an accountability thing almost where, if they're hitting a specific range that they're targeting, it's just going to be less likely that they're going to like feel the, the flexibility, I guess, maybe to deviate from what they know is going to work for them. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it was sort of an obsession of mine four years ago, but I do think that it's an interesting fact that this diet is really the only diet that allows you to track a biomarker, right. To sort of gauge how you're doing. And so I do think it makes the learning a little bit easier and, uh, probably does give you a behavioral lever that you can pull to help sort of get yourself lined up. That's a lot more rapid in terms of the feedback cycle than you would get from stepping on a scale or 
you know, looking at some other metric performance or otherwise. So, uh, but again, I haven't done it myself in a couple of years. So, mm-hmm. did was there a catalyst that kind of other than just kind of maybe moving along with uh, what we knew with nutrition in terms of possibly not being ideal for large amounts of people to go incredibly low or to no fat in some cases that got you interested in kind of going, I wouldn't say all the way to the side of the spectrum, but moving closer that direction with your own health or own markers that you were seeing. Yeah. I mean, it was actually, I can't remember. uh, Let's see. I want to make sure if I get this, this right. So I I was definitely peripherally interested getting more and more interested in nutrition, nutrition generally, but certainly hadn't done a deep dive on carbohydrate nutrition or ketogenic nutrition. And I actually, um, got introduced to a, uh, a weight loss company that I'm sure people have heard of called Amada Health. It's based here in San Francisco. Uh, they, they, at the time they were sort of behavioral tools to help people lose weight. And they were not, they were sort of traditional, uh, low calorie, probably low, relatively low fat diet. They were, they were certainly not a low carbohydrate diet, but in getting introduced to them, I got introduced to somebody who then left that company and went to go work at Verta Health. And he said, hey, look, this is really interesting. You should, you should get to know us. And through a series of different introductions, I got introduced to one of their investors and then got introduced to Sami Enkin, who's the CEO of the company and Steve Finney. And um, they actually asked me to join their advisory board, which I thought was a pretty cool thing because I was here was this cardiologist or conventional Western, you know, traditional, LDL focused cardiologist who wasn't at all low carb, never done it and didn't really have any, you know, specific interest. And they asked me to, to get involved, I think, cause they thought, you know, that I'd have an interesting perspective. And so that was great. Cause I got to kind of see up front and, and, and close and personal, like how things were working and got to talk to Steve and learned a lot from talking to Steve and other people at the company. And uh, that sort of formed the, foundation of my interest in, in low carb. And I didn't myself do it. In fact, I remember at the beginning when I first joined the Virgo advisory board, we would have dinners. We had one dinner here in San Francisco. We went out and it was at a Mexican restaurant downtown. And, you know, we show up and there's like a bunch of stuff on the table, including like some guacamole. And there was, there were spoons in the guacamole, but no chips. And I remember thinking like, this is kind of a cult. Like this is weird. Uh, and, uh, you know, again, same thing, they serve fajitas, but no tortilla, you know, it's like yeah. that whole thing. Um, and I thought this is just not for me. Like I, I don't like this kind of stuff. Like, uh, and I couldn't imagine that a year later I would start doing the diet and then still be doing it four years later. Like I I've been basically with the exception of maybe a handful of days, I've probably been at or near in nutritional ketosis since 2000, whatever that is 18 now. Mm-hmm. It is interesting, like just the framework in which you see, not even to the, to the nutrition value of certain food groups, but just like the application of like making them in your routine and how that kind of switches when you have done something, when you switch to something different and do it for a while, where I remember when I started, I had all these questions in my mind about like, well, how do I give up this food or how do I eat this way? How will I ever go out to eat with friends again? And, right. and then as you kind of get used to it, you, you learn that like as many as there are negatives with our like expansive food environment, those also come with some perks, which means you can essentially manipulate almost any diet anywhere at this point in in America anyway. Yeah, I I agree. And by the way, like that same reaction that I had the first, the first time I sort of witnessed low carb up close and in person, my kids have that now with me. They think I'm super weird. Like (laughs) I mean, they, they, they think it's like a bizarre thing. They ask me all the time, like, are you going to eat this way forever? And it's, as you say, it's a lot easier today. Like, I don't even think about it now. Um, I mean, if I go out to dinner, I don't make a big deal or a fuss over it. Like if I go out to dinner and other than if it's like pasta or something, I can pretty much make anything work. And if it's pasta, I'll just have a salad. So it's, it's really a non, non-issue for me mm-hmm. these days. I don't even think about it. Yeah. Did, uh, when, when you started out with Verda, I, I've had, uh, I think Douglas Hilbert, uh, as one of their, the, one of the Verta coaches on the show in the past, it was interesting just to kind of hear like the, the framework and the way they have that whole system set up. And I think gr- granted you do have individuals going to them who likely are going to benefit from a lower carbohydrate diet. But the thing that stuck out to me the most was just kind of the next level or the next generation support that we're starting to see 
with like the whole system like they have going on there where it's a lot easier from what I can tell for someone to, if they do hit a, like a hurdle in the, in the process to have that support in place, which I think is just huge. I think so much of dietary failure is sometimes lack of like lack of actual real kind of structured support versus just, I'm going to pop open Reddit and see what everyone else is up to yeah. <laughs> kind of on a side of things. Did you, uh, was that your kind of impression when you first, first saw them kind of launch? Yeah. I mean, it was a little hard to untangle exactly what was leading to what was the perceived success. Obviously like, you know, they didn't, they had an ongoing sort of single arm trial. They didn't have the most, you know, rigorous randomized trial, but it was, it was very impressive. The data were impressive no matter what. I mean, you can sort of say, well, they were self-selected people. Um, but it was still impressive. The results they got, the question of sort of what was contributing to that. Was it diet? Was it coaching? Was it, you know, behavior? What, what, what was the whole, it was a little bit hard to untangle that, right? Cause you can't separate it out. They never really intended to be able to evaluate specifically what aspect of the program was working, but it clearly as a program was working, I have some ideas, you know, so I went on after Verda uh, to start this other little company that's sort of still fledgling along that basically takes the approach of the sort of all in intensive human coaching that you get at Verda or Amata or these other companies and says, well, can we replace that to some extent or entirely with, with, with technology? In other words, can you, can you get rid of almost all or all of the, the human element and we did a, a randomized trial. We actually did a trial comparing our intervention to, to Weight Watchers, and it was really powerful, the result. But the interesting thing about it was the, the thing that predicted success in terms of weight loss best was not how often you know people were in ketosis or the relative amount of you know carbohydrate restriction they had or anything else. The, the best predictor of sort of how well somebody did was their own perception of how well they were doing, mm. which sounds kind of like, circular but it makes kind of sense right your mindset is everything and if you think you're doing well you're gonna do well if you think you're failing you're gonna quit right mm -hmm. there's just no it's just not and if you don't do it you're not gonna it's not gonna work so i do think there's something there and it hasn't really been explored in the best way yet to sort of help people get into that mindset of being successful of actually feeling like they're doing something right yeah, that's interesting. Cause I can see, like, I think, especially when you get into diets that have any sort of like restriction side to it, where as soon as you hit, like, if, if, if you suspect it's not working, it's like, you ask yourself, well, why am I restricting myself at that point? Like, why am I not opening up the door to all options at this point, if I'm going to have the same end result anyway, and I can totally see that kind of psyche in place, which then then I think it is important, the more kind of wins you can unearth along the way with health with some of this stuff so that there are those opportunities to show success, even though it may not be the, what you originally thought would, would happen. I think, you know, weight loss is probably the biggest one in that, in that realm where a lot of people get into these things because they, they know they have to lose a little bit of weight for whatever reason. And maybe that doesn't necessarily show up immediately through the results, but perhaps something else happened that uh, that is an indication that they're at least heading in the right direction that they can, they can use as that wind to stay motivated and then address possibly the energy balance side of the equation and, and work on that original goal. Yeah, absolutely. And I do think that's one of the places where ketones can kind of be a factor because it gives you that near-term win, right? Because the scale is so hard because it moves around so much. It has so much to do with you know hydration and other things. So I think people do often get frustrated because they don't see weight coming off. So if you have something else to distract you, it kind of potentially gives you a way to feel like you're doing better. And, and I do think that's important, right? Obviously if you're not happy and enjoying whatever it is you're doing, you're just not going to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting just to see the, see how all these things interplay with one another. And, and, and w one other area that I wanted to kind of dive in maybe a little deeper with you was just the fat source. Cause it's uh once you start a low carb, certainly a strict ketogenic diet, you are in the situation where your primary macronutrient becomes fat and you have to decide how to kind of fill that hole. So similar to like your story of being low carb or I'm sorry, uh, very low fat. And then like that, that fat you're removing needs to be replaced with something. So what are we putting in place of it? I, I think, uh, with fat, it got really interesting for me originally I maybe saw it as kind of reverse of what would have happened 
like initially for a lot of people who come in with like very little background knowledge where I assumed the fat sources would probably make somewhat of a difference. And part of that was because I had, I listened to a podcast with uh, Dr. Peter Atia. I think he had Dave Feldman on and they were talking about that very topic of like saturated fat in a ketogenic diet and like what maybe are the implications of like ratcheting that side of the fat equation up really, really high. And Dr. Atio had shared a story of one of his clients who had focused on quite a bit of like saturated fat sources and his LDL went up quite high, concerningly high in, in most people's mindsets. So they, I, th I think, I think Dr. Atia had him try a solution where he kind of subbed out a lot of that saturated fat for, for olive oil, essentially. And they saw like a normalization happen fairly quickly with his LDL markers. So after hearing that, uh, possibly naively as that's clearly an N of one, but I was thinking, oh, okay. So if you take on a ketogenic diet, it's probably important to be getting some blood work done at least occasionally in order to see what changes are happening. And if you happen to be this person who just rockets up your LDL because of this dietary shift, you may have to be a little more cognizant of what types of fat you're going to implement versus someone who maybe does the same thing, but doesn't have that same extreme reaction in their, their LDL markers. Um, talking to Nick and Dave after that, Nick Norwitz, I had on then after that, cause he's, I think he's kind of like possibly an edge case with, with his sort of like results. Uh, he seemed to think at least for him that it wasn't necessarily the saturated fat, but just the fat content with the very, very low amounts of carbohydrate. He's much stricter than I am. So I couldn't quite compare myself to him as cleanly, but he seemed to think you could still kind of do that high LDL side of things, even with that dietary shift. So then my next question became, I believe that that's happening with you. I don't think I have any reason to believe that he's just like eating a bunch of stuff that he's not telling us and having these different results. But my question then becomes is like, are you like super unique or are we seeing this same thing happen with folks following a strict ketogenic diet at more population level? Uh, so I guess my question there is like, have you seen a lot of issues or situations like Nick, or is he quite rare? And in most cases, if you have concerning LDL levels, is it something that you can kind of correct by being maybe a little more uh, like monosaturated fat centric versus saturated fat centric? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, there's a ton to unpack there. So I actually have, uh, first of all, I think this is an incredibly interesting area of science. I think that Nick and Dave sometimes get caught up in, I don't know what you want to call it, a system of beliefs and stuff that I think is not rooted in science necessarily. I, I don't need to, I don't want to spend the whole time talking about them, but I actually have an anecdotal experience, much like Peter's. I have had patients who've come to me because, you know, again, I'm a cardiologist. I openly care about lipids. I think lipids, you know, are one of, if not the biggest now contributor to coronary disease. Now that most people aren't smoking cigarettes, certainly one of the most important modifiable risk factors along with blood pressure. But, uh, you know, I've had the same anecdotal experience where people have come in eating a very sort of conventional, high saturated fat, butter, bacon, you know, steak, ketogenic diet or low carbohydrate diet and their LDLs, you know, through the roof. And just like you say, by swapping out the saturated fats, foods containing a lot of saturated fat for foods containing a lot of unsaturated fat. Now you, you mentioned monos and I think, you know, for reasons that we could I just will never understand. Polys have been completely demonized. Um, we know that N3 poly, polyunsaturated fats are great, like in the form of you know what you find in fish. And uh, I think there's an incredible, crazy amount of noise around N6s, but I think polyunsaturated fats are, are perfectly healthy. And uh, so I just lump it all as unsaturated fats. Obviously, we don't eat you know fatty acids. We eat foods. And so you want to eat foods that are sort of rich in the things that you want to enriched for and that don't have a lot of things you don't want. So again, there are two ways to frame this, right? One is, well, what foods have been demonstrated to be healthy in a meaningful way? Like where have there been rigorous or well-done trials to show that food A is better than food B? And then the secondary question is, okay, well, let's ask the same question as it pertains to the effect on biomarkers. And specifically, let's just focus on, on LDL cholesterol or ApoB. Um, and I think, you know, sometimes those two are linked, but they are very different questions. Uh, 
I think at the end of the day, you end up with the relatively the same answer, which is the foods that tend to spike up ApoB or LDL cholesterol also are the ones that have been shown in the best trials that we have to be not that healthy, not just for cardiovascular disease risk, but for cancer and other things as well. So um, that's that's been my experience. Obviously, I'm, I come at it from a very different perspective than say Nick and Dave, probably much more aligned with Peter and the patients who come to see me are self-selected for people who sort of at least want to pay attention to this that aren't ready to just dismiss it and say it doesn't matter. And and so, you know, I work with them and we work together to kind of find a solution that allows them to eat the way they like to eat and maintain what we think is is the optimum risk, you know, of mitigating some of these, these sort of what I would perceive to be dangerous effects. So, and there are lots of ways to do that. You can do that with nutrition, you can do that with medicine, you can do that with some combination of both. So I think uh, the thing about Nick and his story, and you say he's an edge case, and I think you're absolutely right, he is an edge case. And the reason Nick is to me such an edge case is that basically he's dismissed every single option for him to mitigate this astronomically high LDL cholesterol that he runs around with. Like there are lots of ways to get that to come down. And Nick basically has just said he doesn't like any of them or doesn't, he feels like the risk of whatever any of those options might be is greater than the risk of running around with the higher LDL cholesterol. So again, I don't want to get too caught sure. up in that mess, but yeah. Yeah, no worries at all. I think it's it's an interesting, I think like one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you about it is because I, I assume you probably just see a lot of folks kind of coming through that uh, are on what I would maybe call a little less structured low carbohydrate diet and are maybe aren't accounting for the types of fat as much as someone like maybe Nick is. So like, generally speaking, I'm just curious, like, how many people are actually showing up with, or I guess maybe the way to say it is, is a ketogenic diet is a big concern that this type of diet is going to lead to cardiovascular issues in a large enough group of people who just kind of, I don't want to say haphazardly, but I mean, everyone probably myself included gives yourself a little bit of a, a little bit of wiggle room within like a strict parameter in order just to make it kind of sustainable long-term is that like, are you seeing a lot of people walking through with concerning LDL levels when they're just kind of like following a less structured, low carbohydrate ketogenic diet? Or like you said, is there like a lot of options to maybe mitigate that, that people are also kind of doing inadvertently that are keeping them low? Like I think of myself as, or one thing that Nick said was like, you could probably just throw in a large sweet potato and it would fix the problem in most cases. I'm like, well, for me, I'm just going to throw in the sweet potato then because right. I'm already eating more carbohydrates than the average strict ketogenic person, partly due to the lifestyle and things like that. But uh, that was kind of my big overreaching thought was like, is this something that like, should I as a coach be telling people who come to me for coaching services who are also happen to be following a low carbohydrate ketogenic diet to be very concerned about, uh, very concerned about just like, the diet being inherently bad for LDL versus just a certain way of doing it possibly being bad for LDL. Okay. So let's leave out the like nutritional epidemiology, the risk of eating, you know, bread and meat kind of, let's just leave that a lot and just focus on LDL. So, mm -hmm. I mean, it's a little hard because people come to see me, it's a self-selected group of people. And so probably it's overrepresented the number of people who actually come to see me with high LDL. It's probably not average. The best I can tell from talking to a lot of different people, you know, Ron Cross, other people who kind of pay attention to this, is it's somewhere on order of, order of about a third of people who are doing some form of a low carbohydrate diet that will see these spikes in, in LDL cholesterol or ApoB. And those spikes can range anywhere from sort of going from a baseline, let's just say a baseline LDL cholesterol of 100 milligrams per deciliter up to 200, or in like Nick's case, you go up to 600, 700, 800. You can see these like astronomical spikes. Uh, I personally believe the evidence today in front of us that we live with from multiple different lines supports the idea that that's dangerous. And I'm not willing to or ready to say, all right, well, we can just leave it alone and we'll figure it out later. To me, that that's not an appropriate answer. Now I have patients of mine who come to see me and their LDL cholesterol is super high and they decided they don't want to do anything to change it. They don't want to change their diet. They don't want to take a medicine and I don't fire them. I, I work with them and we, you know, 
go through a process. And a lot of times that does end up with them making a change, not because I'm badgering them, but because it's an education process. I think sometimes people are very moved by what they hear online or see online or on podcasts. It's very easy to be kind of misled. And, you know, so part of my job is just to help, to help to educate people. And as I've said, you know, I think in this case, it's a great situation because there are multiple options to mitigate this effect of LDL. So let's just say it's a third of people, a third of people have this effect to some, you know, again, varying degrees. There are multiple levers you can pull on to make that, make that better. And so that's what my job is, is to help people kind of get there through one of these approaches. Hey folks, just a quick reminder that this episode sponsors include Athletic Greens and Gooder Sunglasses. Athletic Greens is giving you a free year supply of vitamin D and five travel packs with your first purchase. And Gooder Sunglasses is offering 15% off with promo code HPO for your entire order. You can find links to those sponsors in the show notes or at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. What would you say like the maybe the top three options that you like to use with folks who have L- have higher LDL levels and are open to making some manipulations to change it uh, that, that you like, like to pull from. I know for like adding some carbohydrate back has, I think shown to be helpful. So it hasn't seems- shown it to be helpful. It's shown to be helpful in an end of two or three cases. Okay, I mean, gotcha. I, I, it's just, again, like we have to be, reasonable. We have enormous, vast amounts of data showing that high saturated fat causes an increase in LDL cholesterol. I mean, that's been, those have been done. This study has been done since the 1950s. Mm-hmm. Very careful in, you know, in-person nutrition ward studies where they replace foods and they'll take, you know, they'll give you butter or lard and replace that with something else. So that, I think, you know, this like case series thing that's going on now with like a bunch of people publishing their own whatever they say they're eating and the effects that to me is like the most flimsy of all evidence. So I, I, I think um, my personal view is you can, you can certainly change the diet. I think the question of course is, and this is something I ask these guys all the time, super frustrating to me because if you just take a circle and you divide that circle, and this is all the macronutrients you're going to eat in a day and you divide that circle and there's going to be some pie that's, you know, fat, some pie that's carbohydrate, some pie that's protein. So if you're adding back carbohydrate, what, what are you doing? You're either cutting protein and you're staying eucaloric, right? So if you don't change your calories, you're either cutting protein or cutting fat. And most people end up cutting fat. So I don't think it's in an isolate. I, again, I don't think adding back carbohydrate necessarily means that it's the carbohydrate. Those studies have not been done it's probably a, a restriction on the fat. So I think uh, that's certainly an option, right? So going back to eating a non-low carbohydrate diet, if that's some, something that doesn't, I mean, I've had patients come to me that way and say like, this is scares the shit out of me and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do this anymore. So that's certainly one. I think the saturated fat experience, again, it's anecdotal. I will absolutely admit it's pure anecdote, whether it's me or Peter or anyone else we're on, any of these other people who do this, but I've found a lot of success in having people in fact, somebody just wrote me on online this morning talking about how his LDL cholesterol went from 180 to 120 by cutting saturated fat intake. So I do think that's an option. And then of course there are, you know, now three or four, I guess, with pentadoc acid, different medical options. If you, you know, sort of want to be able to continue to eat the way you've been eating and, and don't want to change that and are open to taking medicines, there are definitely options now for doing that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, the fun one the one thing I get puzzled by a little bit with just and this is possibly just internet banter is some of the demonization of polyunsaturated fats because I mean if I have any bias with that topic it it's that hoping that they are like one hundred percent great for you because all it does in my opinion for low carb ketogenic diets is offers an additional option to to have available to you whether it's to lower LDL or just so you have more options to pick from. So like, personally, I think like that learning more about that, like, like, you know, what do we see, or maybe not learning more, but just like being becoming educated onto like kind of how these different fats kind of interplay with some of these, these readings and knowing that if you do choose to ignore it and lean heavily into 
saturated fat and you have those high LDL levels, that is your choice versus something you're kind of more or less stuck with. If, is that sound kind of accurate to you? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think the, I don't want to get like down the rattle of this whole seed oil thing, but <laughs> again, I don't know if that was Nina or where that came from, but, um, again, it's just uncontrolled, right? What it's, what, what foods contain the most amount of quote unquote industrial seed oils, it's the most highly processed foods. So show me an experiment where you feed somebody just pure oil. I mean, first of all, nobody eats oil. Uh, and when you do, right, like if I were cooking a meal with some sesame oil, it's like a couple of tablespoons. So I think one of the things that changed in my life when I started doing local hydrate diet nutrition was I started to eat much more food that I prepared or somebody I know prepared and much less food that was coming out of a package or came from you know somewhere else, a restaurant, not even a fast food restaurant, but just any restaurant. And so I think what that gives me is sort of much more control over what I'm putting into my body. And so again, if I'm cooking with an oil, please like, let's not be silly. Uh, you know, like if I want to throw some vegetable oil in a pan and saute a piece of fish, is that going to kill me? No, I don't think so. So um, I think that there's very good evidence that substituting saturated fatty acids for polyunsaturated fatty acids will lower LDL cholesterol. Again, I think this is a little bit circular because part of the reason a lot of these people don't believe in LDL cholesterol is because they like eating steaks and right, they don't yeah. want to give that up, right? Like they, uh, so then, you know, you want to, and they also have had a lot of success with the diet and they've you know, lost a lot of weight. They've come off their diabetes medications. There's all this. And then there's this sort of skepticism around what mainstream medicine says and what the government says. And so I think there's just all this stuff tied up and then they're, you know, they just want to find a way to be able to do what they've found to be very successful for them personally. And that means not making any changes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you, do you see like a big, is there other people who are coming to coming to you or that you're seeing that do have what you would maybe consider are outside the range of acceptable amounts of saturated fat, but for whatever reason, their LDL markers are staying relatively normalized or within range at least. Yeah, that's a different, that's kind of a different question, right? So um, that's where you have to like check your own bias mm -hmm. because we were all raised on this concept of like bacon and butter and eggs are bad for you. So if you come to me and you say you eat a lot of bacon butter and eggs, but your LDL works great, you know, you have great genetics and you're able to clear it or whatever the mechanism is. Does that bother me? Well, intrinsically, yeah, it probably bothers me a little bit, but I'm much less concerned about it than I would be. I mean, again, I think nutritional epidemiology does suggest that, you know, above, well above average consumption of some of these foods is not good. We can all admit that nutrition, nutritional epidemiology is not perfect, but it's probably gotten more right than wrong. And so that's a separate question. But again, if somebody from a cardiovascular standpoint says, look, I'm eating all this stuff and my LDL still looks great, then I kind of hold my breath and say, okay, that looks, I'm, I'm willing to kind of live with that. I personally don't like eating that way. Like I personally eat the way I like to eat because it feels healthiest to me. And maybe again, that's just bias of how I was raised and that I'm brainwashed, but it just feels healthiest to me. And I feel the best when I eat that way. I don't feel well when I eat a lot of like heavy saturated fat. Um, I just don't, I just never, I just don't feel that well it kind of sets my energy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's just, you know, a good, a good example of like, to some degree, looking at your own individual needs and be taking honest inventory of how you feel when you do certain things versus just trying to follow something for the sake of following it. Um, do this is maybe a good time to jump in a little bit about your specific protocol. Cause that is another thing that I was interested in with your particular kind of program. It, it sounds kind of like you're maybe a little more towards like the Mediterranean diet style of yeah. low carb keto. Yeah. I, and that's the way I explain it to people now is because I think most people understand what the Mediterranean diet is, mm -hmm. or at least have some vision of what it is you can imagine a picture of a cookbook or something. So for me, I eat a Mediterranean style diet. I can either say eat a Mediterranean style low carb diet, or I can say I eat a Mediterranean style diet, but I don't eat the bread and the pasta, right? Like, mm -hmm. and the, the grains, if there's something on there, but I will actually, like I said, I've been increasing the amount of carbohydrate that I eat. I still don't eat bread or pasta or cake, 
except on like super rare occasions. But like if there's a thing of couscous or farro or some grain or something, I'll, I'll have that. I'll have legumes. I'll have you know lentils, beans from time to time. Uh, so yeah, that's that's the simplest way to explain it to a layperson. Is it's just the Mediterranean diet. Just get rid of the bread and the pasta and some of the grains. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that one, maybe even from a messaging standpoint, makes a lot of sense to people because they've, most people have heard more positives than negatives around the Mediterranean diet. And, and a lot of times in case we've probably seen it as a preferred way of eating. So when you can tether your approach to that, you're likely going to maybe get a little bit less upfront he- resistance or hesitance. If it's someone who you can tell is going to be open-minded once you kind of break through their initial biases. Yeah. I, in fact, that very thing happened in my own personal experience, right? Like I think there's a lot of an intrinsic skepticism about ketogenic diets, whether it's Atkins or other forms of low carb diets within say mainstream cardiology. And, you know, we can, we could spend hours talking about why that is, and there's probably some truth to it. There's probably not, but the reality is the cardiology community has been slow to come to accepting low carbohydrate diets. But I found that there was sort of a ground change, like a real fundamental change in the way that they would accept it and think about it when it was framed as I just framed it to you, where it's really just a Mediterranean diet, but you're taking away these, you know, bread and pasta and grains. Cause I think everybody understands like, that's probably not like the healthy part of the Mediterranean diet. I mean, in fact, if you look at Predamed, which has its own set of issues around, you know, the retraction and everything else, but still remains the single biggest randomized trial of nutrition to show an impact on heart endpoints, like risk of dying from a heart attack or diabetes and things like that. What they really were testing there was sort of the addition of a large amount of olive oil and or nuts. And so, you know, again, I think you'd get very little argument that like taking bread out of a Mediterranean style diet, like if you went to Greece or Turkey and sat down at a restaurant and just didn't eat the bread or didn't order pasta. I think most people would agree. Yeah, that seems like it's pretty healthy. If you've got like fish on your plate and vet, lots of vegetables and douse it in a bunch of olive oil and a lot of avocado. And I mean, looks pretty good. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. You can definitely make a, my, my wife is Greek, so I'm very, very familiar yeah. with their cuisine and it, you can definitely walk away happy and content after a meal uh, prepared by the, by the Greeks for sure. So um the other thing I wanted to ask you about, do, do you do any like yogurts or eggs or anything like that? Or is that pretty, or is that less common in your diet? Yeah, no, I'll eat eggs. I eat eggs much more when I'm traveling. So I, eat, I st- we don't, we didn't get into intermittent fasting, but you know, I, I stopped, I used to do time restricted eating. I stopped doing that a couple of years ago because we did a study and the study showed it doesn't really work. So I just figured why am I wasting my time or why am I torturing myself? And uh, so I started eating breakfast again. It was kind of hard, but eating breakfast on a low carb diet is hard if you're not going to want to eat like a lot of bacon and eggs, right? Yeah. It's there are actually, so I got into, uh, it was introduced by a friend of mine who at the time was doing a vegan style, low carb diet, which by the way, I, I tried and found very difficult to keep going. Like I was able to do it for a week, but it was not enjoyable and definitely impacted how I was able to like cook and interact with my family. But one of the things I learned from that was that there are a lot of these plant-based yogurt alternatives that come with very little sugar and very little, you know, net carbohydrates. And that once you've sort of lost the taste for sugar, you can dump in a bunch of nuts and some seeds and berries and stuff. And it's a great breakfast. So that's kind of what I eat when I'm at home. I'll get one of these. My favorite is the Kite Hill coconut milk based yogurt. Uh, it's hard to find, but the almond milk based version is, is good. And there are some other coconut milk based yogurts that are fine too they don't get the consistency quite as, as right, but I just dump that, you know, whatever it is, half a cup or whatever it is, a cup into a bowl with some berries and nuts and seeds and stuff. And that's breakfast. When I travel, I probably end up eating a lot more eggs because it's just hard to find, you know, options like the cereals and yogurts and stuff that you find out at like a normal restaurant. Like I went and had breakfast with my kids over the weekend at a, a hotel. We had brunch and basically the only option was to, you know, it was breads and pastries and sugar sweetened cereals and sugar sweetened yogurts and then eggs and bacon and sausage. That was kind of it. So Mm -hmm. traveling for me is when I eat that stuff. Sure. Yeah. So do you stay away? You stay away from the dairy for the most part then that's why you go with the coconut based yogurts. 
Yeah, I actually have started to, to try there. It just was really a, fa- a function of the fact that there weren't that many da- uh, dairy, sort of milk-based yogurts that were relatively low fat, sugar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and so I, I've recently tried a couple of sort of their, some Greek yogurt brands that make it a little, relatively low added sugar version. Actually, um, I, I just really like the plant-based ones that I, I don't, I don't know if it's, uh, I mean, again, I haven't really done, I need to like read update my labs. I haven't done them in a long time, but it would be interesting to see what the difference would be. I would imagine if you're eating a full fat yogurt, that's probably going to be a bigger impact because of the saturated fat, but, uh, you know, what's the, the macros on these plant-based yogurts are pretty good. So that's part of sort of part of it. I think is just trying to moderate the amount of saturated fat that I'm taking. Mm-hmm. Do you, do we know, like, I, I was looking into kind of just like the saturated fat content from like some stuff like coconut milk and versus say what, what you're going to get in like beef tallow. And from what my understanding was, and feel free to correct me if I'm yeah. way off base here, but like my understanding is like, there may be some interplay with just the whole nature of a certain food that is what limits the negative response to these versus you know, you take something like beef tallow or butter, you're kind of like just essentially removing the saturated fat from that product and then having it in isolation possibly, or just ramping up the ratios of it when to, in, compared to what you'd maybe get in say like wild game is that's kind of what maybe you suspect's going on with like coconut being not necessarily a, an issue with that versus something more. It, it may be, it's really hard to tell because it's as far as I know, the studies haven't been done in a way that would allow us to answer the questions, but there have been studies done to look at sort of different sources of saturated fats So not all sources of saturated fat or not all foods that contain a lot of saturated fat are the same in terms of impact on changing lipids. And the two that get the most attention as being sort of the least provocative of raising LDL cholesterol are, are hard cheeses and dark chocolate, the two foods that tend to have a lot of saturated fat relative to other foods but don't seem to have a huge impact on lipids. And again, I don't think anybody really knows why that is, but there are a bunch of theories. And one of them is that, you know, it's the whole matrix of a, a hard cheese and it's something about, uh, you know, the fermentation process or something else that goes into sort of the aging that makes it less of an impact on, on saturated fat. But that, that's definitely been tested and like well done, again, really well done uh, replacement studies that hard cheese is like, you know, hard, cheddar, Parmesan and stuff are, are, have relatively minimal risk or minimal effect on raising LDL cholesterol. Mm-hmm. And are those, cause one of the interesting kind of pushbacks I've seen on like the hard cheeses and full fat dairies being relatively benign is that they're benign relative to like a substandard starting point. Is that something that's been teased out in the research that you've seen where it's like, oh no, this person was clearly heading in what we would consider a very healthy way blood markers confirm it and then we introduced uh something like hard cheeses or coconut or dark chocolate or something like that and they still saw that same clean uh yeah. lip, lipid profile i i don't i'd have to go back and re-review the literature and again a lot of these studies were done a long time ago sure. but i think they were done pretty well and i think there is a general agreement that there is something unique you know, again, these were really well done replacement studies where they would have people on the same diet as a, as a run-in and and then they'd feed them basically, they'd do these crossovers where they'd feed them a bunch of hard cheese versus a bunch of beef tallow and then they'd swap and they could measure the impact on lipids. So I do think there's probably something unique about them. Um, I don't think they're healthy. I just, as I think people sort of fall into the trap of thinking like, oh, well, having two glasses of wine a night is healthy for my heart. I don't think eating cheese to be healthy is like, I wouldn't advise it. What I would say is I think it's the least unhealthy way. If you like saturated fat and you like cheese, I think it's a reasonable way to go. Like we're not all machines, right? We're not just going to eat tree bark all day, every day. And like, we actually want to enjoy our lives because we're not around here very often. So that means like going out and having a great meal sometime and not like worrying about it. And so I think, you know, I look at dark chocolate and hard cheeses as kind of a way to be able to treat myself from time to time and not make a huge impact. And as I said, like, I'm not so strict that I like would never 
you know, if my kids get a dessert and we're out to eat at dinner and it's like a cheesecake, I'll have a bite of it or I'll have a couple bites of it. And there have been a couple of times in the past four years where I've just gone crazy, but you know, it's all kind of relatively moderate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One thing I think that kind of follows that type of a kind of a process that I've done more of after I kind of got rolling with things, I started looking at things through like a multi-day lens versus just like a singular 24 hour time period where like, it's a, a black and white win or loss. If I do it wrong, where, you know, maybe I overconsume carbohydrates one day compared to what I would typically like to stay within because of like a situation like you described, well, you know, that doesn't, that, that, that could be something as simple as reducing my carbohydrates for a bit the next day and making a two day balance versus looking at it yeah. purely through a clock. That's super smart. Yeah. Super smart. And I mean, again, my wife's an interior designer and she talks about like when her clients present her with a budget number that they say, well, they want to spend X number of dollars that she then has to like build a portfolio where like she'll do some shopping at Pottery Barn and then she'll do some custom furniture to get them to the number. It's the same thing. You know, again, one night out is not going to kill anyone ever. And like, if you want to go to the movies and have popcorn, go to the movies and have popcorn. And by the way, like who the hell knows, maybe all the fiber and popcorn nets out like to be positive probably don't have like a gigantic supersized meat <laughs> yeah. tub of it with like a bunch of that fake butter on top of it yeah maybe you don't do that but uh, it was it was game over when they gave the they gave you the dispenser to put the butter on the popcorn <laughs> yeah 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 i mean that stuff i don't even know what's in that stuff but, and that's the other thing like i just i said it earlier it really does i really do try to know what i'm eating like it does the cleanliness of the ingredients or whatever it is that I'm putting in my body is something that is important to me. Maybe I'm just fooling myself, but at least I know what it is. And again, simple things. I think most people can agree on. Like I often ask the question, like if you took a group of, you know, really intense vegans, really intense carnivores and put them in the same room and said like, what can we agree on together? You'd initially say probably not that much, but I bet you, those people would find some common ground. And one of the things they might say is, maybe let's just eat more whole food. Like, I think mm -hmm. it seems like that's something that, that both of those groups, which are you know pretty much at the extremes, opposite poles that they could agree, like more whole food, but less food that's processed in, in any way. It seems like that's an important thing. So I think it doesn't mean you can't have any processed food. And obviously we can get into the whole, like, oh, olive oil is processed food nonsense. But the idea is like, have a sense of what it is that you're eating and where it comes from. The more cooking you do, it's actually a question I've started asking all of my patients when I see them, which is what percentage of the meals that you eat on a weekly basis are meals that you make or somebody in your home makes. And I think it's really predictive of how healthy somebody is going to be, that they invest that time and energy in their own nutrition. It doesn't mean that we all have that luxury. Obviously, you know, if you're a single mother working two jobs, you're going to have to find a way to feed your family. It doesn't mean mm -hmm. you can't go to the farmer's market and like, you know, cook three meals a day for your, for your family. That's not, that's impossible, but it just means aspiring to kind of have some better sense of what it is that's going mm -hmm. in your body. Yeah. You know, the interesting thing about like the processing where I had a little bit of maybe of a paradigm shift with that topic in the past was I had a guy, Dr. Bill Schindler on the podcast. This is a few years ago, probably at this point, or at least a couple. And he was just talking to me about like, like when we look at processing through this incredibly wide lens of just like, you know, minimal processing to like hyper processing to the point where it's like literally like a chemistry lab of flavor, yeah. like addiction. Yeah. Like, so it's just triggering you to eat more essentially. Yeah. And he's like, he, what he said, he's like, you got to look at it through the human lens of processing is what got us to where we're at because we don't have the, at least not anymore, have the tools that are going to do some of that heavy duty processing inside us. So we have to pre-digest our food in a lot yeah. of cases before we eat it. And he's like, if you look at processing as pre-digesting, you can kind of find where the line maybe is in terms of like, what would be a healthy processed food versus something that's like just super hyper palatable that you know, you're not going to be able to put down. And if you include it too often, you're going to essentially overeat. Yeah. I think you, you hit the nail on the head. It's not processing. It's, it's probably the ingredients. Like it's all right. This cup of coffee is processed, right? Like mm -hmm. there are beans, they're roasted, they're then put in a grinder and then you pour hot water. I mean, so it's processed, but I know what the ingredients are. It's water and coffee beans. That's it, right? Like that's what I'm drinking right now. Same thing with olive oil. Whereas like if I go to the vending machine and buy a you know bag of Doritos, 
and start reading through all the ingredients on there. I don't even recognize like <laughs> 90% of them. Um, so it's, yeah, that to me is probably the, you're probably right that it's, it's not so much the processing itself. It's sort of how engineered are they? Mm-hmm. And like you say, a lot of these foods are engineered to be addictive and taste really good. Yeah. If, if the person selling you the food literally has in their advertisement, I bet you can't just have one. You probably yeah. know you might've processed yeah. too much, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. Interesting stuff. I think, um, you know, one of the things I wanted to ask you about too, was just, uh, I mean, there's the fiber, um, topic in terms of just how that kind of behaves. But then I think if you take it a step further, there's possibly like some application with like fermented sources of vegetables and things like that, that I think maybe fits along the lines with the the processing side a little bit too, where, uh, or the pre-digestion side of things, maybe where we're adding these foods into our diet that could potentially potentially work synergistically with other foods to make us more healthy is, is there like, do you differentiate a lot between like add more fiber versus add more fermented foods ever with the folks you're working with for any particular reasons? I definitely add, I definitely think fibers are great. We didn't talk about it, but it's one of those levers you can pull, uh, that should have an impact on, on cholesterol. Again, is it, adding the fiber or reducing the fat, you know, I, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't really know, but I do think fiber is a great one. I personally love fermented foods. I think, you know, it all delves in the details. So like, I love these lupini beans, which are, you know, the fermented, basically low carbohydrate beans. Um, there are other fermented foods. I like kimchi and stuff like that. Uh, but it's all like, you know, in the amount that you're eating, it's certainly not, you know, the vast majority of what I eat but Mm -hmm. definitely can make a difference. Yeah. I think the interesting thing about fiber and fermented foods from what I can gather is that you could draw up an experiment, I guess, where you included that on top of what you're already doing with minimal calorie add. So you have this like scenario where you can kind of keep calories equated, but just introduce something different. And then you wouldn't have necessarily the reduction in saturated fat as much as you'd have just the addition of something new. I think that, uh, I think that experiment has been done, but I think it, it could be done better today in a way where you'd like really get at some of the questions you're asking. There's also a question of sort of, in addition to, you know, the benefits of fiber potentially on, on lipids, it's good for your gut. And I think it's also, there's like an element of, um, it may even benefit if you care about it the, your ability to make ketones. So, I mean, there, there's all kinds of potential benefits of fiber. So much of it has to do with sort of eating foods that are high in fiber, as opposed to just like eating a, a bowl of Metamucil or something. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, Did, uh, with the fiber experiments that you can recall, is there like a margin of diminish? I mean, there's clearly going to be at some point, or it's probably gonna be a bathroom related margin of diminishing yeah. returns, but is there like a point where like, Hey, just try to get this amount and you're probably going to check your boxes. Whereas going well beyond that is likely not going to help you from an LDL standpoint and possibly just make you use the bathroom more frequently. It's a, it's a great question. I don't know. I mean, that, that that's probably answerable. I, I just haven't looked at the literature recently, not to be able to tell you off the top of my head, but there probably is, there probably is, like you say, there is going to eventually be sort of a bathroom effect there. And I think some, some or most people will sort of choose to kind of taper off before they get to that just for convenience sake. But, mm-hmm. um, but I think, you know, again, that there's a lot of interest in, in the positive health effects of fiber, like not just on, you know, lipids and cardiovascular health, but on the gut and other things as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause I feel like the people who are like against fiber or avoid it intentionally, what I find is like, when you talk to them about a lot of times it's digestion related. So it's like kind of this interesting dynamic of like, well, is there something you can do to correct that? So you're able to get some fiber in and pull that lever versus just feeling like you're miserable by eating it. And I think there's probably some application in the majority of people of just introducing that food in small amounts to kind of get used to it. But at a certain point, there is probably some individuality between like your body's ability to really feel good with certain amounts of it. And there may be people on the lower end of the spectrum that have to be a little more careful about how much they introduce versus someone um, who probably responded really well to like, say a vegan diet who can eat like well above the daily recommendations and not feel like yep. too off by it. Yep. Totally. I agree. Yeah. Awesome. Um, 
there was one other thing I wanted to just ask you about a little bit was with the low carb diets, because I see a lot of back and forth on this topic and it's hard to kind of figure out where the pros and cons actually are with it. And some of it's just like the insulin sensitivity side of the equation with low carbohydrate diets. Like from your experience, is that something where like, is, if someone has, has issues with that, is that where the low carbohydrate diet possibly shines or is that something that's possibly been kind of overplayed a little bit? I, I mean, I, I think to the extent that we can measure it and uh, unfortunately just the quality of science out there right now is not, not sort of a plus plus, but this it's sure suggests that, that it does benefit improvements in insulin resistance, just important to kind of separate out insulin resistance from glucose tolerance. Cause it, mm-hmm. you will be relatively glucose intolerant. That's probably because you're so insulin resistant that your pancreas is just not making that much insulin. You can correct that in a couple of days, but I do think there is a, a general improvement in, in insulin resistance. It doesn't mean you can't get that from other diets, but I do think it's sort of where local rider diets really do shine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It almost seems like that sort of comes along for the ride. So you don't have to yeah. make, maybe do any like additional things to do it. Whereas with correcting with other diets, there may be some other steps that you have to kind of think about. So for the person who's like looking to maybe check a few boxes with one approach, if that's one of the things they're looking to check off, they can maybe get it as a, as a ride along, so to speak. Yeah, definitely. Awesome. Was there anything that you wanted to chat about Dr. Weiss or anything that I glossed over that you'd like to dive into? I don't think so. We could probably talk for like another hour. If I had more time in my day, I'd love to do that, but uh, it's been really fun. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's been great to have you on and, and kind of hear your take on some of this stuff. I mean, I've been following you on Twitter for a while, so it's been kind of interesting to put, you know how it is on there. It's like, I mean, it's a micro blog. Yeah. So the hearing yeah. the person yeah. speak about it and listening to podcasts you've been on too, have been really, really interesting and informative for me. So um, I'd love to have you back on down the road if you ever have anything that, yeah, let's uh, yeah if, especially if something, something new changes and it's worth talking about kind yeah. of how this impacts folks that are looking to use a low carbohydrate, low carbohydrate ketogenic diet for any purpose. Um, but yeah, before, before I let you go, if you want to share with the listeners where they can find you online or on social media or anything you got coming up, feel free to share that. And then I can also put it in the show notes. Sure. I mean, I guess the easiest place to find me is on Twitter. I, I haven't spent as much time there at all in the recent past for a variety of reasons, but uh, yeah, my Twitter handles at Ethan J Weiss. And I also have an Instagram account, which is basically pictures of my dog, same, same handle, but, um, yeah, that's kind of it. Awesome. We'll definitely put that in the show notes and thanks again for taking some time and uh, have a great rest of the day. Of course. Thank you. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the human performance outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, folks, if you are interested in adding some structure to your training program, I have some options that might interest you. Over on my website, ZachBitter.com, I have a wide range of ready-made plans that have options for beginners to advanced endurance athletes. I also have personalized plan options where I will cater a plan specific to the event you are preparing for and your personal schedule and training availability. You can also access a variety of add-on options from email collaboration to consultation calls to help guide you through your training and nutrition needs. You can access these with or without a formal plan. So head over to ZachBitter.com and let me know what you think.